is going off track, and I mean the hits just keep on coming. Mike, Jonah, Brad, Stephen. Yes. Yeah. Is that, is that everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody I here? think that's everyone. That was always weird. Did you ever see? Um, I know you guys. None of you are Sammy Hagar fans. I don't hate Sammy Hagar. Okay, okay, I like Sammy. I do. I know. I like, I mean, Hater. I think, look, anybody who has, uh, you know, their claim to fame is, you know, he he attributes his success to uh, beings from another dimension. Oh, that's right. You like him because you think he was abducted. He definitely was. Yeah, but that's like kind of the only cool thing about him. Yeah. Come on. No, and I heard, and that, and he owns like, that. he owns Cabo San Lucas. It's, you, he it's does own that town. Just because you would like to be his friend doesn't mean that he's cool. You suck up. <laughs> I don't really want to be his friend, but I want to be abducted by his uh, people, and then they can tell me what I'm doing wrong. I mean, he definitely with my like life. has figured made some, life out. He's made some good decisions. Yeah, totally. Like they came down and they were like, "Here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna first join Van Halen after." And he's like, "That's ridiculous. How would I do that?" No, Just first he joined Montrose. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but you know. Yeah. But it's funny when people are like, yeah, Van Hagar is the worst, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, I'm sure he's upset that he was in Van Halen. Now he's like a millionaire. And now he's and a like, millionaire. Just like right. yeah. drinks and hangs out on the beach. And like, yeah, was like, you, you know, really got one up on him. I'm sure yeah, he's just every, crying about right, that. Right. And then every, then the second thing they came down and told him was, you know, you like tequila. You're going to make a really good one. And he's <laughs> like, where? And they're like, Cabo, you idiot. <laughs> and then he went and he made it. And then he made, if he didn't, I think he sold that for a billion dollars. 80 million. A billion. Holy you could just 80 say million? eighty million. Yeah. You sold so, eighty million dollars. So everybody, you know, like, you know what? Right. I've read his book. <laughs> yeah. And he literally started like in Colinga, California, as a migrant worker. Like, like he and his family were like migrant workers, like picking lettuce. So. And he went from lettuce to <laughs> lettuce riches. picker to billionaire. Dear God. The book is actually hilarious. I still can't forgive Drive Fifty Five. I can't. I can't stand that. It's a very it's silly song. It's, it's like the pretty worst. stupid. The All only right. thing good about it is that it, when in in fifty years, when you want to show people how bad the eighties suck, you just show them that video. You're like, this is what happened. The video of him in the courtroom <laughs> wearing his outfit. <laughs> this is what I don't know. It's kind of awesome. Videos right now became that I'm in about the eighties. He, he 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 got rid of he killed the ticket with the power of rock and roll. <laughs> Yeah. 55 is pretty slow for the freeway, though. <laughs> yeah. It does feel. Most people can't drive 55. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's he not was really the, like He rebellious. was the voice of the people. And you yeah, hate but, that about him. The only other, <laughs> the only <laughs> other, like, <laughs> the only other speed that would have worked was 65, because then after that, it's like 75, and then that's weird. I can't drive 75. I like to work. drive, like, 75 or over. 75 or over. Does, yeah, it doesn't work as well as 55. The story, well, I guess, the story in the book is he got pulled over, and the cop was like, you know how fast you're going? And he went, I can't drive 55. And then he went, oh. and he said, and the lyrics just wrote themselves. But he said 55, like, 55. <laughs> I was like, okay, uh, yeah, that's kind of catchy. You should go write that. Well, I guess we should then at least give him credit then, because they raised the speed limit shortly after that, and so now it's 65. That's all I want is a nice... Thanks. Thank you, Sammy. Sammy Hagar. From Sammy to Stephen Brodsky. Yes! Um, today, our guest on the podcast is Steve, who's an awesome dude, and the singer for a band called Caven. Who He's got an EP out. He has an EP out. Hit or Mystery. Hit or Mystery, a new solo EP. And yeah, you may know his work from classic Caven records like Beyond Hypothermia, Until Your Heart Stops, or Jupiter, um, and there's, or Pitch Black. They're still putting out records. Perfect Pitch Black, I think, was the last one, but... Uh, he has done some of the craziest metal I've ever heard. His new stuff is not like that at all. But uh, his stuff—I mean, he's all over the place. Yeah. If you hear one Cave and Rake record and you go, oh, "Okay, I'm gonna listen to the next one," you're like, oh, "Okay, though." So this is different too. Yeah. No, it's true. And yeah, now I guess he's playing with Max Weinberg or not Jay Weinberg. And uh, yeah, he's got a lot going on. I also run into him almost every day. It feels like because <laughs> he lives right near me. And that's how we booked him. Jonah grabbed him and said, "Come on in." I abducted him. and it comes back if only we could all be abducted by Sammy Hagar's aliens so today I'm going off track (laughs) I guess it's Stephen Brodsky from Caven and solo artist and been in some other bands as well I believe maybe not a like more side projecty stuff yeah, I've lost count at this point. <laughs> when does it go from side project to full on project? It's a good question. Yeah, like from the sidecar to the motorcycle. Yeah, when do you start yeah. driving the damn thing? <laughs> uh, I guess when it kind of drives itself. You know, 
when something's kind of got legs and it just kind of moves on its own. Um, that hasn't happened too much for me, but uh, I always like kind of the satellite little projects here and there to provide some inspiration for whatever the main thing that's happening, I guess. I have to say that when I first heard Cave-In, it was, it was like, a, a, I want to say a three-song CD. It might have been three songs from the record that were sent out uh, from the record label. And I listened to it, and I was like, oh, these guys are really great. I like this a lot. And then um, I went to, like, the back catalog, and then I went to the record after that. And it was like the sounds were completely juxtaposed, completely different. It was like this crazy evolution from the band that, I couldn't pinpoint like what the sound was, which I like a lot in a band where you can't genreize, <laughs> specify what exactly it is. So how would you describe it? Yeah, just a whirlwind of sound over the years, <laughs> I guess. I mean, how you were really you must have been really young when the band started. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we all were. Um sixteen, seventeen, maybe younger. Uh, we didn't have our driver's licenses. We had to kind of bug our older friends who had cars and driver's licenses to please take us to this show in Connecticut that we booked. And <laughs> we need your help to get us there. <laughs> so when when Caven started, you were you guys had a singer, right? Like beyond hypothermia and that stuff. A sole vocalist. Yes. Yeah, fifth member. Yep. Yep. We were five piece. Okay, I remember yeah. that. And then when did you start singing? Uh, Full-time for me on vocals happened probably around uh, early 1998. Okay. Yeah. So was that like um, until your heart stops? or? Uh, it was during the writing process okay. of that record. Gotcha. Pretty late into it. Okay. Yeah. And was that a necessity or you wanted to sing? It felt like it at the time. Um, I think because the band had been kind of this revolving door of members, um, vocalists and bass players just coming in and out. And um, I think at the time we felt like instead of trying to find a fifth member, uh, maybe it was just better to go at it like a four-piece, you know, Metallica, Megadeth style. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, the four of us had a really good chemistry and... Uh, it just uh, seemed like the easiest and most logical thing to do at the time. And who needs a lead singer? <sighs> I got to tell you, man, it seems like a fun job. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Just show up, plug in your mic, you're, that's it. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the load-in is just a breeze. <laughs> Hang out at the bar. Yeah. <laughs> and where was this? Where did you guys start? Where were you located? Uh, we all grew up in Massachusetts, Probably. except Caleb. Caleb is from New Hampshire, Uh Concord um, is where he uh, was living before he joined the band. Um, so, yeah, New England, New England-based. I always think it's interesting. Like, it seems like there's such a core of bands from that area, like you guys and Piebald and, like, um, HopeCon, whatever, Converge. Like, what was it like, like, that sort of period, like, I guess, in the 90s when you guys were all coming up? Because it seemed like there was so much excitement around you guys and, like, I remember playing the space and all that kind of stuff. I mean, is it, what was that sort of like? I mean, what were the, and that's like a super vague question, but was it, did it feel like a sense of community sort of when you guys were coming up? It did. Yeah, for sure. It was an exciting time. And I was actually kind of just thinking about it recently. Um, you know, how lucky I felt to be part of a really thriving local music scene. Um, and you didn't have to go to Boston or a big city um, to experience it, which I thought was cool. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Methuen, which is a suburb of Massachusetts, uh, about a half hour north of Boston. And, uh, you know, before I had my driver's license or was able to, you know, easily get into Boston, I could go to local shows, you know, sometimes two or three times a month. And um, Where were they, like VFWs? Or? Yeah, VFW halls, Elks Lodges. Uh, there's a place in North Andover called the Red Barn that was, um, you know, a pretty thriving place for um, a lot of local music, hardcore, alternative rock. I don't know. It was all over the place, really. Um, so I got to experience a lot um, and just, you know, uh, I didn't have to go very far to 
to be a part of it, which is great. Well, is that how you found out about bands was from shows? Because, you know, we take the internet for granted nowadays. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, local shows, you know, were just kind of, it was a place to be, like, you know, two or three times a month. And, um, and there were always bands kind of starting and breaking up and then, you know group of kids would get together and form another band and i don't know maybe it's not that different these days but yeah you you just kind of had to go to hear what was happening and um you had to be there in the room at the club or the elks lodge or whatever it was and um yeah you'd buy the demo if the band was good you'd read the thanks list and you'd be like oh this band knows these other bands maybe they're worth checking out too so um yeah it was it involved the same kind of research but just in a different way. You know what's interesting? It's like every time I talk to you, you're such like a friendly person, I guess. But when I first was exposed to Cave and it was like all the seven inch art was like weird surgery stuff or like injuries and like the music was so aggressive. And like in my head, I was like, these guys must be maniacs. <laughs> when you guys like are like the same age as me, basically. And like, but the imagery was so, especially at that time, I felt like I hadn't, other bands weren't really doing that, I guess, or that I was exposed to. Where did it, that come from? Yeah, well, man, I I, I remember, uh, you know, just having cable TV at home, and, and someone was like, have you ever seen the Surgery Channel? I was like, no, what is it? And it's like full coverage of, like, some really intense surgical procedures. You got to check it out. And, okay, and, you know... That blew my mind. At like a, you know, as like a fifteen, sixteen year old kid, you know, I'm like sneaking around trying to find my dad's camera and taking photos, and you know, oh, cool, this would make awesome record cover art, you know. Um, <laughs> just I don't know, a bunch of suburban kids just trying to entertain. And the themselves. gallbladder surgery was a success. <laughs> yeah, what is the point of that channel? Who's learning how to do surgery from watching TV? I remember <laughs> happening upon that channel in high school myself, and I thought it was like softcore porn. It was just like this <laughs> naked woman lying on a table, and then all of a sudden, a gown's thrust upon her, and her breast is removed. I remember being like, ah, yeah, <laughs> awful. Yeah. Never watched it again. Yeah. Better just to stick with those VHS tapes kind of stashed away in your mm-hmm. parents' drawers. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting because, like, I love, you know, band hypothermia and, like, a cross bear, all that stuff I thought was so great. And then Until Your Heart Stops. And then I felt like the band really did change. Like, I felt like there were so many more effects. And I remember seeing you guys in Ithaca a few times. And, like, just, like, all the kind of noise between the songs was interesting. Like, how did... How did that kind of come about? Like, have you were you into metal growing up? I mean, is was that the impotence? And then when did you get into like sort of the effects and that type of stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, heavy metal was definitely sort of discovered at a very early age for me. Um, you know, it was like the thread of my suburban youth. You know, <laughs> like what were the bands that like you were listening to all the time? Um, there were some older kids that lived down the street from me that were way into anthrax and suicidal um and that's kind of how i got exposed to some sort of under the radar metal and uh they're also really good at drawing so you know um they kind of helped me perfect my anthrax logo um it's an important logo to be able to do it is (laughs) that that a goes down just far enough for that t to meet right up there where the a is crossed (laughs) you listen to bands that wore shorts yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, man. <laughs> Shorts and... I love Anthrax. Not Men and... Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I don't know, Anthrax, Metallica, Megadeth, um, you know, all the just sort of the classic, you know, sort of cult bands of, of the 80s and 90s. Um, and, uh, yeah, that obviously stuck with me. I think it always has. I mean, I've, I'll always be, you know... Uh, wanting to play heavy music in some shape or form it's just in my blood i can't get rid of it you know um and as far as transitioning from that into something a little bit more expansive um but also keeping the music heavy um yeah i think all of us you know in the group maybe just uh you know we 
once once we I think once we kind of got a chemist chemistry with within the four of us, you know, myself, Adam, Jr., and Caleb, um, and we felt like we were just comfortable as a group of people within a band. Then um, it, it got sort of exciting to imagine what it would be like to experiment a little bit more musically um, within what we were already doing. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't think we saw many bands using effects pedals. And, you know, it was just kind of a cool, fun way to expand the writing process, you know, because um, it changed the way that we played our instruments. You know, you when you have a delay pedal running, you don't play guitar the same way. Right. Um, and maybe with other effects as well. Um, so that was exciting. And um, we just kind of ran with it. You know, how does that fit with the writing process? Because, I mean, you when you put it, I don't play guitar, obviously, but when you put effects together and you know, like how to set the tone and you know what you're going to hit when while you're playing it, um, when you do you think about that while you're writing, or are you just noodling around, or in your head you're like, I need this, <laughs> like, is that how does that happen? Yeah, it's kind of a mix of all those things. Um, you know, there can be some really, like, cool sort of primitive feelings that you have about how a piece of music should sound. And, you know, you can go through the motions in your mind and how to put it together. And um, if you have the right effects, then sometimes it works magically. Um, other times, it's it's the joy of finding an effect that really excites you and makes you want to play guitar and noodle around in your room or at the practice space or wherever. And uh, that in itself can be an inspiration on how you write music. Um, and then there's also just having the effect running and just kind of just losing your mind a little bit or losing track of time. And all of a sudden something cool starts to happen while you're playing with this piece of gear running. Um, so yeah, it's just a mix. It's all, all depends on how much time you spend with said piece of gear. How do you recreate that live though? That's what gets me. Like, is it by rote to the record or, um, with Caven, I think we were conscious about how to recreate what we were doing in our practice space live. And I think at the time, because we were making such a drastic change in our music um, from like the year 1998 to 2000, um, it was important for us to prove that we could do what we did on record live, and make it maybe even sound bigger or louder or heavier. Um, so we kept that in mind. I think when we recorded our records, we just, you know, made sure to document what we were doing onto tape and not have too many additional overdubs and just keep it as live as possible so that, um, you know, we could kind of prove what we were doing on our own and on record in a live setting. I'm curious, like, was there a lot of, because I remember, like, when I was listening, to those, especially that era, you guys came out of a very specific scene and I feel like hardcore in general maybe isn't the most open-minded scene. And I remember hearing, you know, Jupiter and that kind of stuff and being like, oh, this isn't what I want. Like, at the time, I was, like, only listening to really heavy, like, Victory record stuff. And I was like, oh, what is this? Like, and yeah. now I listen back and I really like it. But, I mean, I feel like coming out of that world, it was a, a big change. And, like, especially, like, when people are kind of, it's like when you listen to hardcore, especially when you're younger, it's like that's all you kind of listen to. I mean, was there a lot of backlash or anything like that, or not really? Were people pretty receptive, or what was it like? Yeah, it was kind of all over the place, which was exciting for us, I think, you know? Um, just the fact that we had some kind of reaction um, was, I think, a success just in that alone for us. Um, and yeah, there were people who were really upset and passionately felt one way about the band and, you know, were maybe hoping for a certain kind of output to continue. And then when that ceased to be, they just didn't come to the shows or buy the records. And, you know, at the time we felt like, well, for every fan that we lose because of what we're doing, we hope to maybe gain another that's into what we're doing. And, um, you know, when Jupiter came out, we were playing with all these bands that we wouldn't have played with or had a chance to play with, you know, six months to a year prior to that. Um, so there was just a whole new audience that we were kind of being exposed to. And, you know, 
a lot more women were coming to our shows, which was interesting. <laughs> it was far less of a sausage fest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was just an exciting time. And, and, you know, yeah, we got, like, things thrown at us on stage. Like, you know, people would throw chewing gum or, you know, nothing too crazy. But, um, yeah, I, I think um, it's natural, though. I, I, I would feel the same way going to see a band that I passionately loved for one thing. And if they got on stage and just didn't celebrate that, um, and they just maybe even went as far as to ignore it altogether, yeah, I would be a little upset too, you know? Um, so I've been there before. Um, I'm sure many people have too, but I wouldn't say it was the smartest thing for us to do at the time to just maybe like not play any songs from like a particular record <laughs> for a duration of time. That people loved. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some senses, yeah, maybe we shot ourselves in the foot. But, you know, we were just so forward thinking and kind of wrapped up in that bubble at the time that um, there was just too much excitement to, I don't know, really uh, think twice about it. No, that makes sense. I'm curious, too. You guys kind of went through all the major label stuff at a time before kind of, I guess, like the shit hit the fan kind of with all that stuff. I mean, did you have the whole like courting by labels and like the like that extravagant kind of what was that experience like because i obviously you guys came from such a diy kind of scene Mm -hmm. and then obviously ended up in rca how did what was that kind of period like i'm always curious about that yeah that was kind of a whirlwind in itself um i think it always starts with one label being interested and if one label is interested in a band and it's a label that is obviously, you know, a label with a lot of money and buying power, then a lot of other labels follow suit. I mean, now who knows? This is 10 years ago that right. I'm talking, and things change so quickly now in the music world. But um, that's just kind of how it happened for us. Uh, one label was interested, and then all of a sudden it seemed like six or seven or more um, were on board within months, you know? And it was like a mix of major labels, independent labels. Um, And also what happens with that is there are people who want to be involved from a management point or, you know, a booking agent point or, uh, uh, you know, then there's like, uh, you know, you get all kinds of weird offers just coming and just people just kind of flock towards you. And it gets a little crazy and it, you know, it definitely felt a little crazy at the time. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's in a nutshell, that's kind of how it happened. You know, that must be interesting when you have your specific sound to be courted by major labels. I mean, can you, when say an A&R person comes to me, comes to you, could you like smell on them? They don't really know what we're all about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was some there were some funny conversations. There were people who flat out said, "I don't really know anything about your band. I'm just here because I was told to come meet you guys." <laughs> <laughs> we're like, "Oh, that's interesting." We'll like, have the lobster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of weird scenarios that came about from that whole time. Like, you know, we had a, a good friend of ours working at Newbury Comics, and uh, one day. After being bought a really expensive dinner, this uh, gentleman who was interested in signing our band took us to Newbury Comics and said, have at it, buy whatever you want. And here's our buddy, like our good friend working behind the counter, watching us just like go around Newbury Comics and just like, literally we're walking around with like armfuls of CDs. Like he, he can't even see our faces. He just sees somebody like walking around with a stack of CDs you know, walking up to the register and just being like, are you kidding me? You know? <laughs> did you buy any comics? Um, did I buy any comics? I hope I did. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, God, I cleaned that place out. Yeah, seriously. Um, yeah, uh, just, yeah, a lot What's of... What's the methodology behind that? If you're going to sign a band, hey, do you want to go buy a lot of records? Well, I'll pay for them. You know what? I'll be honest, that would work for me. <laughs> I would be like, I don't care. I will totally sign with your label. I just want to let all these set records. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember 
I was working at AP, and uh, my friend Ross, I did a zine Lavender show with this guy, Ross Siegel, and he reviewed, I don't know if it was, I think it was Jupiter, and he called it, like, the pet sounds of, like, uh, hardcore or something. Like, that was the slogan, and I was like, dude, you don't do this. And he was like, I was like, that is, like, the worst jinx you could put on a band. Like, that is just, like, this insane hyperbole. Like, what does that even mean? And, uh, I mean, did you feel like there was kind of a lot of pressure on you guys once you were at that point where it's like, because I felt like there was so much excitement around the band and like, you know, being like that kind of press, I feel like it just adds to like the, did you feel a lot of external pressures? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, uh, I think, um, I think when you kind of surround yourself with a lot of new people, um, you have to, let go of certain aspects of where you came from in a sense um to be able to embrace these new people that you're working with in order to acclimate to a new situation that was hard for us you know um we you know severed ties with a a booking agent that we've been working with for a while we were about to you know discontinue um like a, a full-on working relationship with a record label that essentially helped break the band. Um, so it was a number of things like that that were kind of frightening. And uh, yeah, so just it was such a, a crazy whirlwind. I keep using the word whirlwind, but it really felt like that. You know, it was just a, a whole circle of things kind of happening at once. And um, um you can't help but read your own press sometimes. I mean, now it's easier for me to kind of ignore it. Um, but then, yeah, you know, you're young and and a little bit more impressionable and you're kind of wondering what people are saying. Plus, you have your publicist saying, oh, here's a whole stack of press reviews. Check them out. Here you go. That's a bad publicist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're not supposed to give you that. They're supposed to read them and go, everything's cool. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously trying to prove that she was doing her job. And there was a lot of press. Like, I don't know, people seemed interested in writing about the band. And, you know, that was great. Um, But, um, yeah, I think think it never helps to, to read that stuff and to be caught up in it in order to make the best choices musically, you know. And, uh, I don't know, um, that's... So what the time frame is you guys had put out a bunch of records and then and then like how many before Jupiter? Well It was a really abrupt shift in sound. Yeah. Um Until Your Heart Stops was the full length that came out in ninety nine, then Jupiter was two thousand one, I believe, or maybe two thousand. Gee, I can't even remember anymore. Or maybe Until Your Heart Stops is ninety eight and Jupiter was two thousand. Um so um in between those records was an EP. Um, so yeah, up until that point, we'd only done one proper full length. Wow. And then all this happened. And, and about how old were you then? Um, when Jupiter came out, 2000, let's see, I was 22 or 23. Yeah, it's a lot to get hit with. So I I'm, I was always kind of confused about the chronology because I felt like you guys put out Jupiter, there's all this stuff, and then like, I felt like I didn't hear anything for a while. Like, I remember you guys touring a lot, and then I didn't hear anything, and then, like, I felt like... Then all of a sudden, you guys were, like, playing at Santos and had a new record, and I was like, obviously, you did a lot in between, but what... When did the band stop, and, like, what kind of happened? Because I felt like... Oh, so you missed about I missed, 12 years? I kind of tuned out for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, like, saw him on the street, and I was like, oh, what's up, dude? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not asking you to summarize the last 12 years, but what what... I guess, like, what happened was, like... Did it just never, like, crack through? Or, like, you guys, obviously, you got dropped at some point? Or did you split? Or Yeah, we put out one record on RCA. And amidst that, there was a whole three or four years of pretty intense touring. And then we made demos for what was supposed to be RCA record number two. And those did not go over well. So, did you do another abrupt sound shift? Um, well, people were saying, What's with the Cookie Monster vocals coming back? 
I thought you guys were past that. Oh, yeah. Okay, I remember this. And we were just like, oh, boy. Here we go again. <laughs> but it's like, I, then I felt like everyone was like, when you didn't have them, was like, where are they? Like, we want them. And then, you know, like. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> just, you can't, you can't, we just can't win. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think we were trying to just have a little bit more fun with our music and, and play it a little bit more loosely and also just try to involve more personality in the band. And, uh, yeah, I think that just didn't resonate well with some of the people who were involved at the time. And a lot of people who were involved at the time were not involved to begin with. So that added to the confusion. And it just got to the point we were like, we got to just sever ties with our label and just kind of scrap this whole thing and start over. And um, we were lucky, though. The demos that we had made for RCA Record Number 2... We got to keep. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, and that and that eventually became a record called Perfect Pitch Black. Um, we got to use those recordings and just, uh, you know, finish them, mix them, put them out. It was a record. Great. So, so you had some good people working for you that enabled that deal to happen. Yeah. Our manager at the time helped us get out of our deal. That's great. And, that's uh, huge to be able to get that. It, yeah, definitely. Yeah. We fared a lot better than other bands that i've heard about mm. in a similar situation i just had an amazing flashback to seeing you guys on i think maybe the jupiter tour and like not playing any old stuff and then you guys being like all right we're gonna play an old one and everyone was psyched and then it was like a zeppelin cover <laughs> <laughs> it sounds about right <laughs> so when did you did you was there did the band ever take a hiatus or a break i mean yeah. Um, shortly after we had toured on Perfect Pitch Black, which is around 2005, um, the band stopped for about four years. Okay. Um, Caleb was living in L.A., um, started a family out there. Um, J.R. moved to Germany um, with his soon-to-be wife, and Adam and I were still living in the Boston area and just kind of playing and... Um, you know, various projects, side projects, riding in the sidecar. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, that was the case until about 2009 when we were all living in the same city again in the Boston area and uh, we started playing again. So when did kind of the solo stuff start? Were you always doing that even when Caven was a thing, kind of making your own recordings and being like, this won't work for Caven? Yeah, I have been just kind of active as a solo musician pretty much ever since I could record music um you know on my own uh which I guess maybe is you could count it as being like I don't know as early as like 1994 which is around when I got my first four track machine um I didn't play my first show as a solo musician until like 1999 I think um and then yeah so uh, I think between recording and playing throughout the years, it's it's been as long as I don't know, I've, I've almost as long as I've been playing an instrument. Yeah. And then, and you have a record that's coming out. Is it coming out today, or it's? It came out on Tuesday. On Tuesday. Okay. Yeah, the sixteenth. Gotcha. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, very. And who's putting that out? Uh, a label called Little Black Cloud. Because they're big Winnie the Pooh fans. Maybe. <laughs> uh, it's a label run by my friend Tracy. Uh, she runs her label out of Richmond. She was in a band called Dahlia Seed. Um, she now plays in a band called Positive No. And um, yeah, she's been a longtime friend and supporter of my music. And um, she did a great job. The record looks awesome. She was very patient with me through all my... I don't know, uh, waves of, it's going to be a four-song record. Now it's going to be a five-song record. Hey, let's go for six. Um, let's do this, that, this. Um, I'm a very indecisive person when it comes to the creative process. Um, I just kind of go in and out of ideas, and uh, she fared the storm very well. <laughs> How different is your solo stuff than Kevin? Well, um 
It's uh, it's a little mellower. Um, it definitely has a solo musician vibe, you know, in terms of like being kind of linear about ideas and um, there's a, there's as much layering that you might get in terms of the tracking and how much is actually going on in a recording, um, you know, that you might sort of hear in like a band setting. Um, but yeah, it, there's less sort of bouncing of ideas off of other people in this process. And it's just, yeah, it's a much more linear sort of thing. And, um, uh, I guess that's the biggest difference. I mean, it's still my voice and my guitar playing and, you know, my songwriting stamp. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Are you, um, are you comfortable kind of performing? I mean, like, I get anxiety like ordering a pizza. So like <laughs> True. I know like playing in cave in is one thing, but it's like you kind of have amps and you can kind of but when it's just you, I mean, uh are you, is that something you had to get used to? Yeah, definitely. My first solo shows when I listen back to any recordings of them now, I'm like, God damn, playing so fast. Everything is so fast, you know? I'm yeah. just spitting words out and just playing songs way faster than they ever needed to be played. Almost like I'm just trying to get it over with. Um, is it with a band or just you? Um, I, I've kind of just done most of my solo uh, recordings or songs in terms of performances, uh, just me. Um, and I, I've always been um, attracted to the challenge of like winning over an audience just one person on a stage with an instrument or whatever it is. Uh, and it's tough, you know? Uh, there's a challenge to playing with, like, the silence in the room, and you know, whereas with a band, you're looking to overcome the room. You're, you're trying to overcome what's happening in the audience. You've got the amps to do it. You've got the PA. There's multiple people on stage, and you just charge through with volume and intensity, and you just take it over. You know, you just try to crumble the walls. But as a solo musician, you try to, like, weave the sound in between the people, you know, in between the conversation. And, you know, you find these little pockets of silence to play to. It's a very psychologically different sort of thing going on. Are you playing with, with Jay Weinberg now? Is Are you guys involved in something together? Yeah, we've been playing music together uh, for um, a few months now. And uh, it's going well. Yeah. Uh, it's just the two of us just bouncing ideas off each other, playing some loud, fast punk music, and it's going well. You're playing with some terrible drummers, him, Ben Kohler. I mean, those guys, <laughs> so untalented. I know, man. I'm, so, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky. I really am. Um, I tell these guys, I'm like, why do you want to play with an old, washed-up dude like me? <laughs> Jay says, well, you know, I play with Springsteen. <laughs> dude even like, yeah i feel like jay and ben also have like sort of a similar style where like you're like playing something and then they're like how's this and it's like the coolest thing you've ever heard and they're like smiling and not trying really and you're just like i'm never gonna be that good at anything yeah that knack for us yeah it's crazy some people i think just have that they're like lightning yeah yeah, yeah. keeps me feeling young <laughs> <laughs> and you're not that old <laughs> Trust me. Um, so what? Thank uh, you. No. What? Um. What have you? What do you do? Sort of besides music. I mean, um, did you? Did you ever go back to school, or did you have like any other sort of stuff? Kind of during like the intern period of Caven. What? What else are you into? You know, I never went back to school. Um, I've entertained the idea of, you know, trying to further my education a little bit. Um, you know, maybe with. Um, some internet related studies, you know, website design or coding. Um, but I haven't really delved in there yet. Um, you know, I'm, I'm big into just trying to live a healthy life, I guess. You know, I love to exercise. I'm like a crazy person if I don't exercise. Uh, Sound the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> know thyself. Yes. What hey. kind of exercise are you into? Uh, cycling, running, um, I just got a kettlebell for my birthday. Mm. Kettlebell's supposed to be great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really into Functional it. Functional strength. Yeah. Yeah. It's like cardio, but you're not going anywhere. You can just stay in one place and like you, you felt like you run a race. It's pretty awesome. 
Um, yeah, so, I, you know, I, that's one thing I love about New York, too. I feel like, uh, generally speaking, there's a strong sort of health-conscious vibe throughout New York. I don't know if I'm seeing things or not, but, like, you don't have to go far to get, like, a killer smoothie or, like, a really good, healthy drink or, you know, in terms of, like, good food, the quality level is, like, pretty high, generally speaking. I like little, that about little, this A little bit in New York. I saw Steve's girlfriend uh, while I was running the marathon. I was running across the Pulaski Bridge, and she was running on, like, the side, just doing, like, a regular run. She's like, what's up? I was like, oh, hey, I'm running the New York Marathon. She's like, oh, cool, I'm just going for a run. How's it going? I'm like, pretty good. I'm on pace. And then she's, it was incredible. That's awesome. That yeah. thing that you guys were doing while running... Talking. How the hell do you do that while you're running? <laughs> I mean, this was like a, uh, this was like maybe like a minute to two minute. But words and syllables were coming out. Uh, it's it's actually it's not it's not that. I mean, like for short periods, it's okay. I wouldn't be able to do it for twenty miles. I uh, eat candy every day. <laughs> Me I'm too. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, but like you probably you do something to burn it off. I don't. I've, I've literally come to this point where I think I think I'm falling into like just this wallowing with myself, like this. Fat Marquis de Sade type. I'm just gonna lie here and watch television. But were you were you into <laughs> kind of exercising and stuff growing up? Because I feel like I got into it once I moved to New York for some reason. I, mean, I think it was just from being around so many people all the time. I would want to run because I was like, I want like an open area where I'm like moving because I feel like I'm always on the train, hunched, like mm -hmm. packed in. I mean, do you feel like that was part of it for you? Because when did you move to Brooklyn? I moved to Brooklyn about two years ago. Okay, yeah. Um, for me, it started around 2001. I have a distinct memory of being on tour with Caven, um, and uh, I was taking a medication at the time that um, made me gain a little bit of weight. So at the time, I weighed about like 175, 180, which ah. is <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's probably the most that I've ever weighed. <laughs> um, but I didn't. I didn't care. You know, I had I had no idea about just being conscious about you know what I ate or exercise or anything like that. I didn't even think twice about it. So I was taking this medication that made me gain weight. I was eating like an asshole. Um, <laughs> I just didn't care. And I I remember it was uh, it was a show in England that we had. Um, I forget where exactly in England, but we were on tour, and I sprained my ankle. I sprained my ankle on stage during our set, um, and. So that happened. So I couldn't move around much at all. And then I fell ill. I got sick. I lost my voice. So I was sick. I, I was like, you know, 30 to 40 pounds more than what I usually weigh. And I had a sprained ankle and I was just totally miserable. And I was like, you know what? I got to just kind of turn things around. Um, so I started exercising and I started running once my ankle healed, of course. And, um, and then I just, I kind of got obsessed with it. I just couldn't stop. Um, I would just try to run at least a couple times a week or something. And it really just kind of helped with my mental stability in a lot of ways. And that was about 10 years ago. So, um, I've just casually kept up with it, um, to varying degrees over the years. Have you thought about doing any kind of marathons or any kind of like the racing stuff? Or do you like kind of doing it more just like... Because I feel like it's weird. Like, I used to do a lot of that, and now I like just doing it for fun because it becomes so, yeah. like, about the times and, like... Well, I just signed up for my death sentence. Oh, yeah? What's that? The Brooklyn Half. It's only 13 miles. I huh. say I say only 13 miles, but I had this crazy idea that I was going to run the Boston Marathon this year, um, and I was, like, really going for it. And I think the furthest I got was, like, 14 or 15 miles at, in one shot. But man, my body was just screaming at me the whole time. It was, uh, uh, it was tough. You like, can avoid that scream, you know. <laughs> I do it every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had to just kind of take it down from there, take it down a notch or two. The Brooklyn Half is that the one with Prospect Park and it ends in Coney, it ends in Coney Island or something on the boardwalk. I think so. Yeah, I've done that race. It's pretty. It's pretty nice. Yeah, I'm stoked. Yeah. You're in the park a lot. It's beautiful. Like, yeah. How much time do you have? Um, what do you mean? Like, when is the race? 
Oh, the race is, I think it's like the first week in May. Okay. Um, so I have some time to yeah. get my mileage up. Um, I'm not too worried about it. What's your diet like? Uh, let's see. Cereal in the morning. I'm a cereal guy. I love cereal. Fruit Loops, me too. <laughs> I've done I, this morning. I got a hunkering for um, Fruity Pebbles like ah. on a weekly basis. It takes a lot to fight it off. Fight it off. Just did not. you really have Fruit Loops this morning? Yeah, I did. <laughs> That's amazing. Of course I did. They're delicious. They are delicious. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. But you know what I make up for? for I, well, I shouldn't say make up for it. Um, I take out my cravings at the milk bar, and I just go for like a cereal milkshake every now and then. Oh, that'll do it. Yeah. You, so, so milk, so you're not like vegan or vegetarian? Or I'm not. Okay. But... um. Afterwards, it's not pleasant for people around me. I'll just leave it at that. Fair enough. <laughs> Someone having prunes? <laughs> yeah, I always think it's interesting, too, because um, so many of the bands from that era, like you guys in Converge and stuff, are still doing stuff and still kind of doing it on your own terms, which I feel like is really rare, especially for this far down the road. I mean... Where do you think that kind of drive kind of comes from? Or do you think that's like a localized thing? Or, uh, That's a good question. I mean, I think um, we just kind of fell into this lucky pocket of activity that started in the, you know, the mid to late 90s or started really becoming thriving around then. And um, I think we all kind of inspire each other in one way or another, too, you know. It helps that we're all sort of an incestuous bunch when it comes to music. We're all playing right. in each other's bands and projects. Um, so, yeah, um, it's good. It's like this circle of activity that just kind of feeds itself. What was it like for you recently for the Hydrahead to sort of, they said they were what, going out of business or getting a step? I mean, like, obviously that was such a huge part of Caven's career. I mean, what was that sort of like for you? Um. It wasn't too big of a surprise, unfortunately, I have to say. Um, you know, uh, I think the label, uh, you know, being sort of an insider, you know, I kind of knew a lot about what was happening on the inside. And um, it was tough. It was tough to watch. Um, I think um, I tried not to get my head too wrapped up in it. Um, I just know that it's more important to maintain the relationships with the people involved. And Hydrahead is just one sort of way of doing that, you know. And uh, I know that I'll always be involved with the lives of the people um, involved in that label to some degree. And uh, knowing that was kind of the way for me to just, you know, accept the sadness that came along with the label actually going under, you know. Um so yeah, it's it's tough. Um, and your records were on this label, obviously. Yeah, a lot so does, of records. So does that mean that you get anything back from them when they go under? Like, do you get masters, or did you always had those? Um, that's a bit of a gray area. The labels, obviously, you know, everyone involved in label is is basically of the mindset that like, hey, we want to be involved with your record as much as possible, but. If you felt like you wanted to take your record elsewhere and do something else with it, fine, go for it. You know, we wish you the best. Um, at this point, it seems like the label is going to keep back stock or back releases in print um, on vinyl and through digital media to some degree. So, you know, some of the classic records on that label are still going to have a life to some degree, like um, they are re-releasing the Until Your Heart Stops record on vinyl, which hasn't been in print for many years. And there's some excitement around that, you know, for the band and for some some of the fans out there of that record. And um, so that's good. You know, there's still some sort of life being put into the label and some of its releases. And what's happening with Kevin right now? Uh, we haven't really been active for about a year, a year and a half. Um, I think having moved to New York um, kind of put a stop to things. Um, it's just hard to do the band 
uh, on a full-time level um, with the distance being involved. I think the families have something to do with it as well, like JR and Caleb are dads now. And uh, it's not like they can just make time any at any point to do the band, you know. Um, so we haven't really found our groove with that yet. Um, the closest thing to Caven right now that's active is probably Zozobra, which is Adam, Caleb, and JR. You know, and they all live in the same area and they can get together very easily and play. And they just recorded and released and toured on a really great record. Um, and... Um, I don't know. We're all still very involved in each other's lives, though, you know, outside of the group. And there's always a reason for me to be visiting Boston, whether it's for family or whatever it is. So um, I think at some point there'll be some cave-in activity, and it's something we all look forward to. I mean, it must be crazy. I mean, you guys have been making music together for, like, more than half your life at this point. I mean, it must be just, like, crazy to kind of go through that experience with, like, three other people. Yeah, it's... It, I guess when you put it in that perspective, there's no rush to do another record or another recording or tour. Um, I think you should do another record. I mean, I, I would love to hear another record. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, me too. And we were actually working on some music um, shortly before I'd moved to New York um, that kind of had this really great vibe to it. And, um, you know, it's nothing that we recorded properly but we have demos of this stuff kicking around and um it was just kind of nice to be creative in a way um you know after the white silence record which was the last cave record that we did um it felt like oh cool we, we still have some creative juice in us and um i don't know i think sometime down the line sooner than later maybe um there'll be some more activity and like i said it's just something i look forward to you know until then you're biking and running <laughs> yeah just keeping up the energy to do more stuff in the future you know and then you'll be touring solo well i have some shows coming up okay um i don't know if it's is three shows does that count as a tour yes okay yeah, i felt like we did four cool. un shows and we we're like we're going on tour but the bummer is like by the time like the third show kicks in you're like finally like yeah i have my groove and then they're like oh yeah it's over <laughs> <laughs> it's so true man yeah uh yeah so i'm playing um three shows next month i'm opening for boris which i'm really excited oh, wow. about um and uh the shows are in dc philly and there's one in new york and um i'm actually gonna be playing as a duo um myself and this woman emily lee she plays in a band called snake oil she's gonna be playing keys and sort of creating some atmospherics to flesh out the sounds on the EP. Um, and, uh, yeah, the rehearsals have been going great. I think it's going to be a good show. That's awesome. So is that yeah. sort of where you think for the next kind of time being, that's where most of your energy is focused, kind of on the solo stuff? Uh, for now, yeah. Um, I just want to see this record through and make sure that, you know, I push it as much as possible just to honor the commitments of everyone involved. Yeah. And what's the title? Hit or Mystery. I back that. Thank you. <laughs> True story. <laughs> That's a very mysterious title. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I kind of like wordplay. You know, it's always been a part of my writing, um, you know, for better or worse. But, um yeah, I kind of went about this record with like a do or die sort of mindset. Like, all right, I haven't made a solo record in three years. Who knows what's going to happen with it? Um, who knows how much energy I'm going to have to keep doing this? So, um, you know, it's either got to be something that, I don't know, creates a little bit of excitement, at least for me, or uh, I don't know, I got to figure out something else. Speaking of wordplay, what this is... I just have to ask this last thing. What does beyond hypothermia mean? Because I've always wondered. Dead. (laughs) (laughs) Cold, cold, cold. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I 
good question. Um, <laughs> trying to get back into my teenage, angry, youthful this, HC mindset. Was this the same? Like, this out. is like the Surgery Channel era, I guess. So who knows? It's not just cold, man. It's beyond hypothermia. <laughs> <laughs> I think the title was, um, it was... I think Dave Scrod may have came up with that one. He was good with titles. He actually came up with the Until Your Heart Stops title. Um, yeah. Um, it was just so long ago. I don't know. We were just... I mean, we, we had we had all kinds of sort of ways of coming up with weird... I don't know, twisted things to name a song or a record. And I remember having this massive book of like medical terms that I was fascinated with. And I would just flip through it, you know, like on a weekly basis. And I didn't, I couldn't even pronounce half the stuff, but I was like, oh, cool. All the better to put this on, you know, a record cover. (laughs) Um, One of our early records had a photo of, um, our former bass player, actually our very first bass player, um, Justin Mathis. And it was a photo of him with this massive wound in his head. There's blood gushing down. And the photo was the product of this scenario where um, we had played, I think it was upstairs in the town hall of Andover. So it was a show with Piebald, Caven, a bunch of other bands, at least six or seven other bands. That's kind of how it went back then. And um, Justin had this very um, obsessive move where he loved to just charge his bass into the crowd, like full on. And, you know, we weren't playing on stages then, so he would just charge into the crowd. And at one point, um, during a charge into the crowd, he had moved his bass very quickly upwards and smashed his head into the headstock. And um, so we finished playing the song, and he was just bleeding everywhere. And we were we stopped the set, and we were like, "Dude, you have to go to the hospital. Like you're bleeding, and it's not stopping." And he's just like, "Grab a camera." We're like, "What? No, dude, get in the car. We got to take you to the hospital." He's like, "No, I'm not going anywhere till someone grabs a camera." So someone grabbed a point and shoot camera, and he's like, "Take a picture of me." We snapped a picture of him put him in a car, got him to the hospital. He went and got like seven or eight stitches or something for his forehead. And that photo is what went on the cover of like this early Caven record. I think that sums up the entire band right there. <laughs> Something in that Methuen drinking water, man. I don't know. <laughs> so now you have to go see Cave In. Yeah. Um, Caven, all the, that whole scene of bands, like I felt like with Caven Converge, like, um, man, there's some coalesce. That whole, all that whole era of, of metal is just what gets me about that kind of metal is you expect people who play metal to be able to play anyway. Those guys can all really fucking play, they could all really play. And like, everyone, no one took lessons. Like, all those bands, I felt like just like figured stuff out. Like, it was before, like, you could just learn everything on YouTube. Like, it was a really interesting time where I felt like you had to like listen to stuff and figure it out. Yeah, I remember those. You had to like find that kind of music, you had to like seek it out. It wasn't like you had just stuff everywhere, right? You can't just go on YouTube and watch some guy like teach you how to play it and mostly wrong, like the wrong way to do it. Yeah, yeah. So, it's interesting to see see people go from that and then see what they're doing now because he really never stopped playing music. Yeah. Is, so it's cool. And all the music is out there. Hitter Mystery is out right Hitter now. Mystery came is out, out this now. past April. Yes, in April. And yeah, all the Caven records are great. You should check those out. Um, anything with his name on it. Stephen Brodsky. Stephen Brodsky. He spells with a PH, which is just so silly. <laughs> <laughs> you, ne- you never... You've never... The V? It's always the V. Yeah. V for victory. V for yeah. the, the final battle. Yeah, what? V, the final battle. It's like a it's sci-fi series. Oh, yeah. Oh, the lizard one. faces under oh, the human face. One. They come to Earth to steal all of our water. I take it back. PH. <laughs> Step hen. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, is there like a PH level water joke there? The, in the V, yes. You okay. can, yeah. I don't yeah, know you, what it is. If there's too much pH in the water, you turn to a lizard and you're Robert England, and then you have to go away. It always just didn't make sense why they were, just, they were stealing water like from Earth on their ships. And why didn't they just take – they could have easily just taken over Earth. They looked like us, but under their face were lizard. They could have just gone to the ocean and had all the water they wanted. I think it's all dumb. <laughs> they lost anyway, by the yeah, way. Yeah, they lost. I don't want to give it away. 
Yeah, it's like a five-part miniseries, but don't they, fight, they lose. Don't bring in your super space technology and expect to beat us. We've got guns. Yeah. Sci-fi they had Robert rhymes. England, though. They did have Robert England. Pre-Freddy, I think. He went on to be Phantom of the Opera. It's actually true. Really? All right. Yeah, he did. He did a terrible version of it. A movie version. Yeah, yeah, a movie yeah he version, did a, f- yeah. a film version. Not a singing song version. It was just, they were like, oh, wait, who's that Freddy dude? He, Phantom's got a burnt face. Let's just <laughs> use that same dude. <laughs> That was how that that was how that conversation went. And he was like, I don't sing, I just do the Freddie voice. And I'm like, fuck it, I don't need to use it. All right, if you dig our podcast, we hope you do. Uh, hit go to facebook.com slash going off track, send us a letter or picture. Actually, yeah, send us a letter. We need a, we should have an yeah. address. Let's, we're gonna use send Jonas us a letter to a non existent address. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just send going off track. And if it gets here, yeah. you are awesome. We will yeah. have you on the podcast yes. if that happens. If your letter gets here with picture. One one two one one is the zip code. That's all we'll tell you. <laughs> Uh, twitter.com slash going off track we all have our own fun twitter handles mike has written several i still space haven't bars. tweeted yet and i don't i don't know what it's gonna be <laughs> it's got it's like i gotta just do it and i just can't tweet can't. at mike and tell him to tweet something or that maybe yeah if you whoever tells me the best first tweet i'll do it i will instantly forget to do this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i've already forgot uh, go to our uh, wonderful <laughs> website, goingofftrack.com. If you like the podcast and want to send us some money to keep it going, we'd love that. Hit the donate button. Even if you don't think we need it, keep listening. That would be glorious. Uh, next week, more. 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 Oh.